Hello and welcome to another podcast of Indigenous Roots and Hoots. I'm Gordon Spence, your host, and today uh, I got a young, beautiful woman who's a doctor, uh, first Inuk doctor of Nunavut, I guess, uh, and uh, she's from Nunavut, originally her family's from Nunavut. Just a little bit about her background. Her name is Donna May Kimanyarczyk, and she's uh, the first Inuk doctor. Her mother's Inuit, her father is Ukrainian. Donna May grew up in Ottawa, I believe, and uh, she's got a brother named Stephen. I understand she also plays the piano, so we'll talk to her a little bit about that. She attended Queen's University. I understand she's won numerous awards uh, on her way to the top. So uh, <laughs> welcome, Donna May, and uh, thanks for joining us on Roots and Hoots. No, thank you so much for having me. It's really nice. Maybe we'll just start, or you can start by telling us a little bit about your family background your place of birth where you went to school as, as a young person. We'll start from there. Go ahead. Yeah. So uh, I was actually born in Winnipeg. That's where my parents met. And then shortly after I was born, we moved back up north. So my mom's from a small community called Chesterfield Inlet, Nunavut, which is probably about 300 people. And so we lived up there briefly, but my parents made the decision pretty early on in my life that they wanted to move the family quote-unquote, down south to a big city uh, to raise the kids just because they felt that we'd have more educational opportunities and more opportunities for extracurriculars. They really felt it'd be, you know, really good for our future. So we moved around a little bit and settled in Ottawa. So really, I consider Ottawa my home. I've been there since the age of five. So I did all my elementary school and high school there. And then I went to Queen's University for my undergraduate degree. And then I moved out to Calgary to go to medical school, which was a lot of fun. And then it came time to apply to residency uh, spots across the country. And I really wanted to go back to Ottawa. I just felt it was a, a really strong program, a really great hospital. Uh, and my parents were still there. So went back to Ottawa. Uh, I was there for six years. And then just recently, I moved down to Cleveland, Ohio, where I am now doing extra training um, after my residency. Uh, and so I'm here for a year, and then we'll see what happens. You're a, a medical doctor. Are you specializing in, the, in a certain area? Yeah, so I specialize in heart surgery. So did medical school, got my medical degree. And then no matter what type of doctor you want to become, you have to do something called residency training. So you're a doctor, but you're getting trained in your type of specialty, whether it be family medicine or general surgery or to be an OBGYN or anything. So I, I chose heart surgery. So that's a six-year program. And it's just like an apprenticeship program if you were going into the trades where you're working every day, you're getting paid, but you're under somebody who's teaching you and you start kind of with the easier stuff, the easier surgeries, smaller tasks. And with more and more experience, you build up to become a fully trained surgeon. So I just finished that training program just a couple months ago to be a heart surgeon. Wow. So how, how many years altogether, like the university and plus the six years? 
Yeah. So university, I did a four-year degree and then I went to medical school that's only three years long. And that was one of the reasons why I went there because you're in school 12 months out of the year. You don't have summer holidays like other medical schools do. And I really liked that. And the analogy that I think the Dean of Admissions had said to us on interview day was, think about it like this. If you're training to be a pro athlete, you don't just train eight months of the year and then take a four month holiday and then come back in September and expect to be at the same level that you were at in, you know, April or May. So you train 24 seven as a pro athlete. So he's like, I think it's the same to be a doctor. And that really stuck with me. So I did four years plus three years, but seven years and then six years as a resident. So I guess that's 13, 13 years. And then now I'm, I'm something called, I'm what's called a fellow. So it's where you've completed your training, but now you're doing extra subspecialty training. So I don't actually get to operate by myself because I'm a fellow here. Like I'd be qualified to, I guess, but because I'm technically under a training program here, I still have someone senior to me watching over me or teaching me. So that'll be 14 years. (laughs) Wow. Wow. That's incredible. That's a long time to go to school training. (laughs) Uh, how, like, how old were you when you uh, when you decided you wanted to be a doctor? Yeah, I, I mean, I was I was very young. I was six years old, and I didn't know anybody who was a doctor besides my own pediatrician that I had. No one in my family is in medicine at all in any capacity, so I didn't really know what it'd be like. But I felt this inspiration or this kind of desire to help people because I had been talking with my dad. And I was asking him why I didn't know his dad, because I was really close with all my other grandparents. And so he explained to me that his father had died of a disease called amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS, or also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. And he explained that it's a neurological disease that kind of, for lack of a better description, eats away at the nerves in your body. And it kind of starts at your feet. So you know, you were a perfectly healthy person before, but now you start to lose your ability to walk and then it keeps working its way up. And so you now lose the ability to write or to use your hands to feed yourself with utensils or, you know, draw or do anything else that requires your hands. And it keeps working its way up and eventually, you know, you lose the ability to speak or even eat properly. And then it eventually, unfortunately, kills you. And that struck a chord with me. I, I remember feeling a little scared because I didn't want that to happen to my parents or other kids' parents. And I just felt motivated. I said, okay, I'm, I'm going to become a neurosurgeon and I'm going to invent a surgery that's going to cure ALS, um, not knowing that, you know, you, you, that's not how it works. So you can't do that. But that was my motivation all throughout elementary, high school, and my undergraduate degree that I need to be a surgeon so I can, I can help people. Wow. That's uh, very interesting. How do you, uh, how do you do a surgery on a beating heart? Well, it's challenging. It's technically challenging. So for most of our surgeries, which a lot of people might not know, uh, is we actually stop the heart. So the way that we do almost all of our surgeries is we have to connect the person, the patient up to a heart lung machine. And we do that by sewing in big plastic tubes that can then collect the blood from the body, go to this pump. So it pumps the blood back and gives it oxygen. And then it comes into another tube 
that then gives that blood to your heart. And you basically just put a clamp above the heart so that there's no blood going to the heart at all. And you deliver medication, a solution to stop the heart completely. So it's a nice bloodless and uh, still field. But I actually trained uh, with a couple surgeons that did beating heart surgery, which you can't do that for all types of surgery. Because if you imagine if you have to work inside the heart, you can't have blood pouring in the heart because then you can't see what you're doing and they'll bleed out. But if you're doing bypass surgery, so when folks say, oh, I had a, a triple bypass or a quadruple bypass, those are bypasses that we do on the surface of the heart to restore blood flow to the heart and you know prevent chest pains and shortness of breath and heart mm-hmm. attacks. And there are some surgeons in the world that do this with the heart beating the whole time. I learned how to do that. It, it, I, I really enjoy it. You can imagine, so the bypasses that we do, the arteries that we sew onto are anywhere from one to two millimeters in width. So it's very small, a very small target, and it's moving. Uh, and so you're working with very small needles uh, on a moving target. So uh, it, it can be very challenging and you got to make sure you do it just right to have really good outcomes. That's incredible. <laughs> I mean, surgery alone must be, you know, extremely challenging. And then you're trying to sew an artery that's less than a millimeter long, is it? And uh, it's moving. <laughs> yeah, about a millimeter to two millimeters wide. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. Well, so describe like uh, describe your typical day. Like uh, you get up and uh, and what do you do? Like, just describe a typical day, Donna May, Doctor Donna May. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, now as a as a fellow, and probably in my last couple of years of residency. Um, well, now I mean, we start a bit earlier here, so I'm up usually about quarter to five or five o'clock if I don't have as many patients. Uh, and I'm at the hospital for just before six. And that's in the morning, I round on my patients. So you're going to see patients that you've already operated on. And of course, making sure they're doing okay and, you know, delivering patient care. And then we meet as a team at seven in the operating rooms to talk about the plan for the surgery for that morning case. Uh, and then the anesthesiologists and anesthesia team get the patient off to sleep, uh, get them hooked up to all the monitors and IVs, and that takes about an hour. Uh, and during that time, I'm following up on issues from patients that I saw that morning or uh, talking with the, the nurses about what the plan is for the day for the folks on the floor. And then you start operating around 8 o'clock, and surgeries are generally between, I mean, depends on the surgery, but I usually tell patients, you know, between four to six hours. We have some that are shorter than that. We have definitely some that are longer than that. Um, but, you, you know, four to six hours, uh, and then you break for, for a bit of lunch, a bit of a break, uh, and then you meet again for your afternoon case where you talk as a team for the plan for that operation. And then, you know, anesthesia is getting the patient off to sleep. And then you start your second case again, four to six hours usually. Uh, and then at the end of the day, I review my cases for the next day. I go through all their imaging that they've had done, all their tests, you know, meet the patient if they're in hospital and talk with them about surgery. Or sometimes my staff surgeons already done that. So I don't have to do that again. And then home and it's usually dinner, uh, maybe FaceTime, talk with my my partner or my parents uh, and then getting ready for bed pretty early because the days are pretty long. Wow. Uh, but yeah, that, that's a typical day. What time do you get home about? 
Uh, so it depends. If you have one day where you're only doing one operation, you know, you, I might get home by six. That's kind of the earliest because you have to stick around the hospital, make sure no emergencies come in that you have to help out with. So, you know, you're always in hospital at least until five. And then I had some days the last couple of weeks where I get home at like 11 p.m. because it's a really long, complicated case. Uh, but usually it's going to be around 7 p.m. or so, I'd say, is when you get home. So are you at the Heart Institute in Ottawa? I was. You that's, were, that's, that's, yeah. yeah, that's where I trained, but I'm now at the Cleveland Clinic. Right, right, yeah. Okay. Um, I guess you really have much time to, uh, <laughs> to do anything else. Uh, no. You played the piano? Did you train as a piano player, a pianist? Yeah, uh, yeah. so growing up, I played a lot of piano, but um, once I finished high school, I pretty much gave that up. I, I would play in university for fun. Uh, there were a couple pianos in one of the buildings that you could you could play. So I'd do that every once in a while. And I used to go um, to seniors' home and play piano for them uh, once a week or once every two weeks. Uh, so that was fun. but. Then once I got to medical school and residency, I just, I unfortunately didn't have the time anymore. And so I haven't played piano in, uh, in many years, unfortunately. What kind of, uh, what kind of music do you play when you, when you do? Oh, I, I played classical music. I was trained classically and I, I loved playing classical music. So that's what I did. Okay. Have you done much traveling in the Arctic? I know your mother's from uh, mm. from Chesterfield Inlet, which is in Nunavut. Uh, yeah. Uh, have you done? Uh, have you ha- do you have any contact with uh, your mother's side of the family or anyone? Oh up yes. In the Arctic? Yeah. Oh yeah. So pretty much all her family is still back up north, and so Facebook is great because that's the way that we keep in touch a lot. That I can see what they're up to, and they post pictures and posts and I'll do the same. And so that, that's a great way to be in touch. Um, cause it is so expensive to travel up there. And right. also the weather can be so unpredictable. So it's very hard if I only have, you know, a week off, I'm expected to be back at work that next week. And if I get stuck up there cause of a blizzard or something or a mechanical issue, that's really not a possibility with my work. So I went up there 2019. I went to Iqaluit, but it was literally for about 24 hours in May. So I knew the weather would be good. But, uh, and the other time before that, it was back in Rankin and Chester. I was in medical school in the summertime. Um, but I, have, yeah, I haven't been up a lot in the recent past just because of my work. But uh, we'd gone up a few times when we were kids and uh, or young uh, teenagers. Um, and it's great fun. I mean, it's, there's nothing like being with family and just that sense of community togetherness, that this is your family, this is where you belong. Um, and it really is a beautiful, special place up there. It's like a whole other world. It's Absolutely. Really beautiful. Yes. I've had the pleasure to travel up there, uh, both on a personal level and also, uh, for work when I worked for mm. Inuit of Dunavut. Uh, mm. I've always enjoyed being around Inuit and uh, and working with them. Mm. Do you have a message for young Inuit that are, you know, that are thinking of uh, pursuing uh, higher education? Oh, yeah. So obviously my path is a little different than maybe someone coming from up north because I grew up in Ottawa. And so it may be really intimidating or challenging, you know, to be applying to 
colleges or university. But if you feel excited and passionate about something and you have a dream or a goal like I did that requires, you know, college or university, I say absolutely go for it. I mean, it's so exciting and fulfilling to pursue a goal and to really reach your full potential and you, you know, are just as deserving as anybody else. And there are bursaries and scholarships and funding out there available. It's just, you know, you just have to look for it. I had to look for it. I had to put in the applications. Uh, and yeah, it, it might be annoying at the time, but it's so worth it. You know, there are barriers, there's challenges, but there are ways to work through it or, or to overcome those barriers and challenges to get where you want to be. So it's definitely doable. You know, it pays off if you feel that that's what you want to do um, because you deserve it. And, you know, our communities are in need of us as leaders of our homes, you know, so it's really empowering and powerful. So I would encourage anybody, even doesn't matter what age you are, to pursue your goals. And if that includes higher education, go for it. Right on. The last part of this uh, podcast uh, is the uh, the hoots part. Uh, we've been talking to you about your roots and uh, your story. Dr. Donna May Kimiarjik is our guest. And uh, the final roots and hoots is the hoots part. And that's the funny part we ask because there's so much humor in our cultures. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know if you got the message that uh, we ask people if they have a joke or a funny story they'd like to share with us. Uh, do you have something... Uh, that you'd like to share? Oh my gosh! I'm trying to think. I always say like I'm. I'm. I wish I was wittier. I'm not a very witty person <laughs> or like funny. Like my partner, he's so funny and witty and always has these great jokes. Um, yeah. And I'm kind of jealous because I never have any. I'm even trying to think like a funny story. Shoot. Yeah, I didn't come well prepared for this part. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. You know what? Uh, yeah, I uh, I uh, I was working for your biography so that I could send you that information. Uh, but that's okay. It's worked out really well. And uh, I have I have a I have a funny Inuit joke. Okay. So, uh, where do Inuit do their banking? I don't know. Come on, come on. Where do they do their banking? Well, I want to say a bank but snow bank snow bank (laughs) that's cute (laughs) okay all right uh i want to thank you for joining us on indigenous roots and hoots dr donna may kim and has been our guest and dr donna may and thank you for for being here and, and doing this podcast with us no right on thank you so much for having me yeah you're welcome have a nice day you too. I go make. Mmm, Roots and Hoots is produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. For more podcasts like this, please visit our website at legacyofhope.ca.